Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to a very special edition of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. Rad. And I am Dr. G. And Dr. G, we are joined today by two extra special guests. I know this is very exciting for us. Two extra special people are with us and the mystery of why shall soon be revealed. I know. Well, I mean, this is this is really a treat because we are joined by two members of the unofficial Lady Pod squad. And that is right. We are joined by Jenny and Jen, who are the hosts of the extremely popular Ancient History Fangirl podcast. And we are both fangirls of that podcast, are we not, Dr. G? We are. So it's like super, super exciting. It's like Ancient History Girls Unite. Exactly, exactly. The feeling is mutual. (laughs) Very mutual. (laughs) it's It's actually really shocking that we have not had you on our show before this because it was many, many moons ago that we recorded Spartacus together. And I feel like it's because we're constantly in contact in terms of, I constantly see what you guys are up to on Instagram and constantly listen to your show. And I kind of forget that we haven't actually talked in real life for quite some time. <laughs> it's a parasocial relationship. <laughs> it is, it is, yeah. It's indicative of this sad social media world that we live in. <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, I'm totally caught up with this person's life. Yes, we are enmeshed. I have, I frequently have that as well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are having them on the show today because extra excitingly, they have just written a book. Oh my God. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They are now not only the co-hosts of an excellent ancient history podcast, but they are the co-authors of Women of Myth, from Dear Woman and Mami Wata to Amit's... Oh, see, I'm going to screw this up. Amater- <laughs> Amaterasu? <laughs> Amaterasu and Athena, your guide to the amazing and diverse women from world mythology. Yay! (laughs) Yeah! That is our book. Thank you so much for having us on. This is so exciting. Yeah, we're so excited to be here. No problems at all. And we probably should give a bit of a shout out because not only have you guys co-authored this, but you also have some amazing illustrations by Sarah. Is it uh, is it Richard or Richard? Richard. 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 Excellent. So by Sarah Richard, which really do make the stories, I think, come alive. Absolutely. And Liv Albert wrote our foreword. Can't miss that. I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. For people who might still be unaware, and there must be so few people out there, Liv Albert is the host of Let's Talk About Myths Baby, which is an incredibly popular podcast from the unofficial Lady Pod Squad. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> I think it's just official at this point. <laughs> I think so. I think I'm going to have badges made. I know. I'm like, nice. how we all miss the opportunity to have matching t-shirts made? I don't yes. know. Right. Exactly. We should all have a t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm on it. Done. There's our project. All right. So let's get into it, Dr. G. 
Yeah, so we're very excited about this book. And I imagine that many people who listen to our podcast are going to be excited about it as well. So I'm wondering, just to get us started, what's the basic premise? I feel like the title gives a little bit of a hint, but I imagine there's more to be said on this front. Uh, Do you want to hit that one, Jen? Oh, I'm going to let you start. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the basic myth, it's, it's women in world mythology. It's, it's, um, it's about women and also, you know, feminine presenting uh, characters, figures from mythologies around the world. Um, and that includes, uh, we had 50 different uh, slots and, um, you know, it's, it's actually, there are many goddesses in the book, but it's divided into three categories, goddesses, heroines, and monsters. So, um, yeah, that's basically... And put those monsters in quotation mm-hmm. marks, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah monsters, quote-unquote, um, and, and we definitely go into what is coded monstrous in the book and talk about that a lot. So, um, so yeah, that's that's basically what the concept is. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, I must admit, I was really interested by the way that you chose to set out your book, and I, I found it very, very fascinating. So you've got, as you say, those three categories of mighty goddesses, bold heroines, and formidable monsters using flesh rabbits they're jumping they're jumping all over my screen um can you tell us how did you decide upon those categories when you were setting about writing this book so those categories were actually something um that our publisher wanted Ah. um so it was it came down from on from the publishing gods yeah um and that was it might seem like that could be limiting, but actually it was really fun. And it forced us to really look at who, look at how we were going to break up the book and make sure that we had not just a whole bunch of goddesses yeah, or not just a whole bunch of really great mortal heroines who did incredible stuff or not just focus on some of my favorites in mythology, the monsters, <laughs> because mm-hmm. the monsters are just so fascinating and tell you so much about a culture. Um, it's, you know, it tells you what people are afraid of. It also tells you about how people, um, the things people valued, the things they didn't value. Um, so, you know, there's a whole book that could be made of each of those sections. So it was kind of nice to have the publishing gods on high say, you know what, could you give us a little taste of each? Yeah, it was, I think it provided some good structure. Yeah, definitely. Well, I must admit, I was particularly interested in it because I, I'm a teacher, as I think some people might know. And in, our, in my year 11 course, I get to teach a unit called Women in Greece and Rome, which is a comparative study of, of that. And I actually always have a section on female monsters from mythology, because I, I think it's a great way to actually start off the unit. Because as you say, by looking at what a culture is afraid of, I think that actually tells you a huge amount about their attitudes to various things. But if you want to look at gender, for example, it gives you real insight into that. Oh, yeah. Huge amounts. <laughs> Spoiler, it's almost always women with sexual agency. Almost always. Frequently. <laughs> it's not only that, though. Like there, there's um, there's kind of a subcategory that's like, you know, medical fears. We found a lot of monsters mm-hmm. who were kind of, um, you know, spirits or beings that interfered with, for example, childbirth and, mm. um, you know, what we might call today sudden infant death syndrome, you know, like if this monster attacks, they attack a woman in, in birthing or they attack a baby as, as it's just born. And this is a way to explain deaths that might not be easily explained otherwise in pre-modern cultures. Um, there's also monsters like, for example, um, there was one, an Inuit monster um, that 
was basically like her her um her basically what she was was a monster that tempted children out onto the ice so she would like if a child wandered out onto the ice she would like grab it and take it underwater so you know that just speaks to a real um fear about the environment and about you know children wandering away from their parents and winding up in dangerous situations which i'm sure was a and still is in a lot of places a a real danger right so yeah i think that i think that's a really important point because one of the things that you can see a connection with here is how sexual agency sort of leads into the childbearing aspect and then the consequences of the childbearing fall upon the mother and the child in various ways oh my gosh yeah absolutely yeah. like there's there's all these like kind of revolving fears around women childbirth child rearing that um that exist across many cultures and then you get it on the other end as well. You get uh, a lot of older women characters are also monsters. I mean, famously Baba Yaga, right? Mm -hmm. The the Slavic witch, the deep forest, whose house is on spindly chicken legs and it can move around. And she's kind of a chaotic, chaotic in all of fairy tales. Sometimes she'll do good things. Sometimes she'll do real bad things. Sometimes she'll put your head on one of her gateposts. Um you also have like there's a cannibal ogress who also takes and eats children. So there's a lot of like women who are not within the family unit who are older, maybe past childbearing years, also being dangerous, particularly if they have any kind of knowledge. It demonized, it, literally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like that's speaking to so many things. As a person who's decided <laughs> not to have children, mostly because <laughs> I'm massively afraid of the idea of giving birth, I'm like, yes, this resonates. And also uh -huh. living in a culture where we're terrified of aging and women are just like not supposed mm -hmm. to age. I think this can definitely hit home with a lot of people in our audiences. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, come on. <laughs> I want to be a crone. I'm looking forward to that part of my lifestyle. Listen, we're all going to wind up on Team Cannibal Ogress eventually. Like, we all know that's where we're going. <laughs> I mean, do we have to be cannibals, though? Like, I'm here for Ogress, but do I need to be a cannibal? You can be a vegetarian if you so desire. Thank that you. is fine. You can be a vegan cannibal Ogress. <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually seeing our future now you know soon soon we'll all be of an age where society no longer wants to look at us and has no use for us so we may as well just buy an apartment building that's entirely soundproofed wear our matching lady pod squad t-shirts and we'll all just lock ourselves up in individual spaces and record that sounds like basically what I'm doing now yeah. <laughs> overlooking the sea please yeah Jen Damn. gets a window in hers <laughs> You can have that old crone. <laughs> You've earned oh. it. Her teeth are long. Her windows are glorious. Yeah. That's true. Well, how else am I going to warn people not to approach sometimes by like putting a head in the window? Like I need to have something to warn people. Yeah. Well, it'll be an interesting version of the sirens, you know. Yeah, stop scaring the food away. <laughs> All right, look, I'll be able to manipulate. We can have the low lighting. We've got a few good years yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just good to have a plan, you know. Because it is. Exactly. Eventually, you know, society will cast you out. We are, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's called retirement. There's only so many TikTok filters, right? Like, we can't make the TikTok filters reality yet. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> 
This is taking oh, a dark turn. Um, so I'm thinking about um, bringing things back to the to the topic at hand. I just sort of went out on a little imagination, being like, what would it be like to live in a giant apartment complex with ladies by the sea? And I was like, I think it would be good, actually. Um, looking forward to that. So the illustrations in this book by Sarah Richard, they're amazing, I have to say, like so evocative. And I'm really interested in your perspective one, what was that like working together on this sort of stuff? And how do these illustrations, in your view, really enhance the themes that are coming out in the work? Oh, my gosh. So much to say about that. Like the, Oh, there's so much to say. So much. Like, the, it was very collaborative, you know? Like, we would... Um, we would receive kind of line drawings Sarah and Sarah would do these like really funny line drawings and like kind of put little notes in them, like skulls here and with a little arrow, you know, like more skulls. Children hiding in the woods. Usually it was skulls though. She There's like skulls in stories that actively don't have skulls, which I love. <laughs> so many skulls. I love that. Just as a, as a fan of the cult of the severed head. I just love skulls. Um, and so does Sarah. So I think it really worked. <laughs> but um, yeah, so like she would send it in, you know, like line drawings. We would take a look and go back and forth on things and kind of um, collaborate on what the final result would be. And she so frequently just absolutely knocked it out of the park with very little communication because she had her own process that was always like really in line with ours because I think she had like really a similar kind of aesthetic to what we were thinking of and what we were going for in the writing you know like um not shying away from the gory details for example <laughs> so one of the things that you know we found when we were doing when we were doing the mythology the history everything for this book is there's one word that comes up again and again when you when you talk about women in in these stories and it's a word that I, I personally hate because it's such a loaded word and we couldn't erase it from the book because it's oftentimes integral to the, to the plot. And that word is beautiful. And so one of the things that we had to contend with was how are we going to, you know, we've got this wonderful collection of stories about diverse women. How are we going to show beauty in a way that isn't just a Westernized beauty standard and, you know, what, what we did with Sarah was we worked really closely to be clear about how some of these women could look, how, you know, they could not necessarily look Western. Like, you know, we have we have um, gender non-binary characters. Um, we have larger characters, which for me is always important. You know, I grew up in the era of Disney princesses where they're literally their heads are or, you know, their hands are bigger than their waist. So it was super important to me that we have a full body diversity, full, you know, um, diversity of uh, gender identity. And we I didn't just want like larger people. I also wanted to see women who are super athletic, women who are, you know, slender, women who look like every other woman looks. And also, you know, one of the things Sarah does is you'll see a lot of gorgeous women with, you know, very big noses or, you know, beautiful bright eyes or, you know, the hair textures, everything she's just so good at so that when you look at these women, they are all beautiful and they're not all uniform. And they all look in, different. You know, yeah. The mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. They all look great. Yeah, no, I really loved it. I really loved that aspect of your illustrations. The fact that you had given the thought of, as you say, uh, not just thinking about the ethnicity in terms of skin tone mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, which is obviously 
still a big issue these days, sadly, as we can see, because at mm-hmm. the time of recording, we're recording in the midst of this Netflix furor about the casting of Cleopatra for their docudrama and what she yeah. looked like. And, and I'm mm-hmm. sure we all remember a few years ago when there was some debate about the casting of Fall, uh, Troy, Fall of a City, and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the casting of uh, people of colour to play various mythological characters. So I love that aspect. But I think, as you say, particularly for gender, people might not automatically think about it, but having that diversity of body type is so important. Absolutely, yeah. And that was a big priority of ours. And I think Sarah really knocked it out of the park there too. Yeah, I wanted to see women who, if they were like riding an elephant or swinging a sword, could swing that sword. You know, <laughs> I was here for that. Um, and one of the one of the one of the illustrations that's my favorite is um, the Morrigan, who's the Celtic goddess of the battlefield. She has Jen hair, which is very fluffy brave hair. Um, I, I was so excited that Sarah did that. Um, but also she just looks terrifying. She looks like she would stalk a battlefield with her cape made of feathers and viscera. She looks like she belongs there. And um, she's got this really terrifying beauty to her. Like, I don't think anyone would, you know, can traditionally call her the most beautiful like person, but she's really scary pretty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's just a sign we need to expand our scope of what includes in beauty, like those narrow standards mm-hmm. that come through, particularly online and through mm-hmm. like dominant cultural paradigms. And it's like books like this become really important because they provide that counterpoint. And you're not just challenging culture, you're also expanding it by doing this kind of work. So kudos to you guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I know my students are always disappointed even though they don't want to say it I can see it on their faces because when I am when I am teaching Troy and we start by watching the Hollywood version then when when I show them like the Bethany Hughes documentary and they see that approximation of what Helen or Troy might actually have looked like given the cultural beauty standards uh their faces always kind of fall because they're just like oh my god like it's so confrontingly different to like my you know Kim Kardashian view of what you know what a beautiful woman looks like (laughs) it's like I feel like I've seen Helen of Troy depicted as blonde so often and where does that come from I mean why why is she blonde you know yeah yeah like what are the chances it's like slim to none guys exactly well that's 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 the othering right that's like we see the red hair pop up all the time right as as a ginger like who has Mediterranean roots the only reason you see that is to say this person doesn't belong. Like they're from somewhere else. Yeah. The odds are very high. There were not gingers or there were not blondes. I mean, yes, I'm sure there were like statistically, but realistically, you know, the Bettany Hughes adaptation is much closer to what it would have been. You know, you're seeing those hair colors because it's supposed to be a divine sort of thing to this person um, as opposed to an actual reality of what they would have looked like. Sorry. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. Sorry, gingers out there. <laughs> Before we move on from illustrations, I just have to say that the one that really stood out to me was, um, I'm going to try to pronounce the name and hope I get it right, Eats Popolotl, the skeletal warrior goddess. Yeah, sorry, Eats Popolot. <laughs> yeah, um, the warrior goddess of the Aztecs who also has this skeletal aspect about her. 
just amazing. So she was one of my absolute favorites. So if you ask me, you know, who's my favorite, there are like dozens of them that I could say, but she's, she's one that really stood out to me. Um, and we discovered her like one of the, she was one of the first ones that I found that was kind of outside of the scope of what I already knew. And I was just so excited about her. She's a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztecs. She has butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives and her mythology includes, um, you know, sleeping with a man and then ripping out his heart and eating it, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I mean, all round, she sounds like the kind of woman I'd want to hang out with. Hardcore, right? right. She, she has some great stories to tell you over a over like a nice bottle of like white Zinfandel. Yeah, like how did we get to it. this part where we had to rip the guy apart? Tell me how we got there. <laughs> I mean, I think it's not a white Zinfandel kind of a I think she drinks blood red wine <laughs> all right well listen I don't she would make an exception for me she just put some hearts in hers it'd be fine <laughs> I, I don't think she's a hearts in the wine kind of gal that's just you know blood clots in the wine sure hearts in the wine right. literal just hearts perhaps <laughs> <laughs> that's what I meant literal hearts oh I thought you meant like little gummy hearts <laughs> no <laughs> Okay, I could see white Zinfandel or red Zinfandel with with literal hearts in it. That she would she would yeah. probably drink that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Tasty. <laughs> she works in, like our whole cannibal plan. I think she would fit in. <laughs> so look, I'm really intrigued because uh, Dr. G and I've also just written a book together. It seems really weird that you know you guys were publishing your book right when we were publishing our book, and we're like oh my God, we know a little bit about like what it's like to try and write a book, you know, together, not just on your own, you know, locked in your own thoughts and that sort of thing. Tell us what are the biggest challenges that you encountered when you were writing this book? Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like for me, the most challenging parts um, were because there, there were, I know Jenna's going to have a different answer to this. Um, but for me, the, uh, the challenging parts were writing about, um, you know, women in cultures and mythologies and stories that I wasn't already familiar with because I'm pretty familiar with certain aspects of, you know, Greek and Roman culture and Celtic mythology and things because we had covered that in the podcast. But we were expanding a whole lot beyond what we had already covered. So I always wanted to approach those topics like really well and with the same, you know, thoroughness of research that I did for stuff I had done, you know, a, a two and a half hour, like, episode series on or something so I felt like that you know like I, I felt a little stressed about it sometimes I was just like I want to make sure I get this right I want to make sure I'm not just you know applying a western lens or equating something to things that I had already heard about that it actually has nothing to do with you know um so I was really careful in that and and thinking about that a lot um so I would say that for me that was the most challenging part, but it was also really fun because I got to just get outside of my comfort zone and learn about things that I had not known about before, and that's really the fun part for me. So, so everything Jenny said is also how I felt. I also um, one of the things just to add to this before I go on to what I found really equally difficult. One of the things we were really careful about was because these weren't. Um, were non-Western cultures and cultures that we were experiencing for the first time. Um, we really wanted to try to find sources um, telling the mythology in sort of from that culture. Absolutely. It was super important to us that we make sure that, you know, we looked at sort of, you know, we looked at the starting point, which is a collection or wherever you would find it in English. A lot of times we also, you know, we are, we are a bit, you know, uh, handy. We are, no, we are a bit, 
limited as we only speak English <laughs> and read English. I read a tiny bit of Latin. Jenny can read and write a little bit of French, but with the with the the exception of that, we are not. Um, fluent in any other languages. So, you know, we can't read something in Mandarin. Um, and that does limit the opportunities you have um, when you're looking into other cultures. So we're really careful to make sure that where possible, we found sources um, that were outside of Western cultures and um, use them to tell these, the, the stories of these women. The, the thing that, and, and that was tricky, but the other thing that I found really scary and anxiety inducing was, I tended to cover some of the really big characters from Western and non-Western cultures. Like I covered, um, I wrote the entry on Milan and uh, Athena and Medusa. And these are all stories that are so ingrained in Western culture and other cultures. Like we have certain images of what we're expecting. And I found like, well, what do I have to say that's new that's also true to the story? And how do I continue to make that engaging and not just be the same thing you've read before? I found that really <laughs> intimidating. I think we got there in the end. I think um, so. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. I, I don't know about you got uh, you both, but like I found writing this book with Jenny, we each took different entries, then we edited the other person's entries. But from having the podcast for so long... I didn't find it like our voices, I think, melded really well in the writing of the book. Like, I don't think it seemed like two different people wrote stuff. And I don't know if you had a similar experience because like I kind of felt like it was easy to keep our tone and our voice really consistent. So it felt like one unified project. Like, what was it like for you? Oh, that's a good question. I, I feel <laughs> we, we did a similar thing in terms of like dividing up who would take which mm -hmm. chapter and then co-editing and, and reversing mm -hmm. that and things like that. And I think part of the beauty for us is that we do have two distinct voices. Um, we share a sense of humour, um, <laughs> but you would, I think, for the astute listener of our podcast, they'd be able, they'd be able to identify who wrote which chapter as well. Ooh. And it might not necessarily be the case for somebody who hadn't encountered our work before because we do have really similar touch points. But it's really interesting to me because Fiona has all of these sort of popular cultural references that <laughs> I don't get. What? <laughs> and, and then what I think are popular cultural references are still historical. So, <laughs> and that was something that I was like, oh, this doesn't come up so much when we're chatting with each other, but it was really distinctly clear in the writing. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating to me. So it was like, I felt like we got to know each other a little bit better through the process, even though we know each other so well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. When I was editing Dr. G's chapters, uh, I always break out to a cold sweat whenever I read anything that she's written because I'm like, oh, she's just so effortlessly, effortlessly academic. <laughs> I'm like, I can only, I can only aspire to have this kind of tone to my work, and then I start rethinking everything I've ever written. Um, oh no! Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I frequently feel that way as well. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but you but you have to just have you know I, I have the good thing is I know that if she's the one editing my work, I'm like I feel at ease because if she can write this way and she can edit my work, I know she'll tell me if I'm being an idiot. Um, <laughs> Um, I can sorry, confirm yeah. she is not an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was, um, I agree that I think for someone who doesn't know us, it, they'd probably just be like, oh yeah, this kind of reflects the podcast. But mm -hmm. for people who know us well, or people who listen to the podcast, I think they would be able to tell which chapter was written by which person. And, and yeah, it is mostly because I can't restrain myself. The publisher actually forced me to cut massively back 
on the pop culture references <laughs> so that I wasn't I wasn't dating the book too much because some of them I had to put footnotes in for in my chapters because he was like is that a thing and I was like that's a thing and I'm not cool but you're even more uncool than me so I, I'm not going to delete it I'll put a footnote in for you and others of your ilk <laughs> yeah we included pop culture references when we could find them as well because not all of the um the figures and characters that we found had like extensive pop culture references but there were some who um were kind of emerging and and were appearing in more like kind of manga and video games and more modern pop culture and it was cool to kind of track that down a little bit you know yeah definitely and I think that's useful as well for people who are approaching these sorts of stories because they like they do have a whole wealth of reception as well so Mm -hmm. you know Anything that might be a touchstone for somebody, I think, is useful for bringing them in further into that knowledge. And anything that they come across that they haven't encountered, but the story appeals to them, they've got an avenue to pursue to explore it further. So, Absolutely. Yeah. For example, like Itzpa Palot has, um, I think she's inspired at least one uh, monster in a horror film, the name of which escapes me. And she's also inspired, I think, a Disney Plus cartoon uh, character from there. And I also the name escapes me as well. But I, I know that she's appearing in pop culture recently, and it's really fun to it's really fun to see that and and track it down. Absolutely. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. So, thinking about you've covered fifty women, and I mean this is like you're yeah, like a huge range. Um, is there any standouts? I, the question that we've written down is like who ended up being your favorite, and uh, I'm always a little bit. I always back away a little bit when people ask me favorite questions because I. I I really dislike having to place one thing on a pedestal. So I appreciate that you might not want to go there, but is there one sort of standout for you that, that maybe struck you along the way that hit you differently from what you thought it would or surprised you in some way? Jenny, you want to go first on that? No, I'm going to let you go first because I love hearing you tell the story and I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, I always say the same one and it, I always preface this by saying that they they were all my favorite. Like ha- having done this book, I was always just super excited about whichever one I was covering and I would be texting Jen these little details and I if you ask me what my favorite was that week, it would be whatever one I was working on that week. So um, mm. I, I really did fall in love with all of them genuinely. And uh, they're all, they're all my favorite. I feel very strongly about all the ones that I covered, even all the ones that Jen covered, because I also helped her edit her entries and she helped edit mine. So it was really kind of a joint project in that way. Um, and then we recorded the audiobook. So then we, we didn't record necessarily our entries. We recorded each other sometimes based on the flow of the book. Mm-hmm. So they do really all feel like they are ours, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but I would say that one that has stuck with me that I really just kind of lo- fell in love with and and felt like I maybe identified with or, you know, just, just really loved was this goddess named Oya, who is, um, she is... Um, like an Eastern African and also African diaspora goddess who um, I think she may have like she's like a goddess of the Niger River originally. Um, she's a, a water goddess, but also a goddess of like lightning and whirlwinds and wind. And um, she's a warrior goddess, but she's also a goddess of commerce. And she has so many disparate aspects to her. But one of the things about her. Um, that I just really loved is that she, I think her name means, if I'm, I'm getting this right, I might be messing this up, but I think her name means the terror, as in the T-E-A-R-E-R, the terror. And um, 
part of her, one of her aspects is that she is a goddess of like the destructive force that comes before transformative change. So she would like, you know, kind of rip into your life like a, like a strong wind and just rip everything up by the roots and you have to start again. And I found that to be like a really interesting and important message to me because I know that I see this in a lot of my female friends specifically, and also I have done this extensively in my own life, um, just holding on to a situation that is not good for me because I had hope that it would change, you know, and that has been, I've done this in several different relationships. I've done this with jobs. I've done this with, you know, goals that I had that no longer worked for me, like just holding on to something so hard when what I really needed was some of that Oya energy, just sweeping in there, turning everything upside down and shaking it and just letting me start unburden myself and start over again. Um, and I think, you know, many of us can do with a little bit more of that energy. <laughs> so, so I just, I just love her. And, um, I really appreciate that I got to learn about her in this project. Oh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> super uncontroversial, but like, she's also my favorite that I was super surprised by. Like, I'm very basic. Like I usually say my favorite is Atalanta because when I was 10 years old, finally able to read on my own. I had a long process to reading. I read this book of Greek myths and there she was, you know, Atalanta took no shit, did what she wanted to do. Wasn't going to marry anyone who wasn't her equal, but I knew going in that that was the standard of what I was looking for. Right. When I was looking at these women's stories and a lot of the women whose stories we tell are warriors, but some are moms, some are children, some are, goddesses of of tearing things up and starting over but the one who really surprised me the most is also Oya because I don't know like as Jenny describes it every time every time I get to hear her say it I'm like yeah we all need more of that in our life you know like we just let go or be dragged and Oya's like okay it's time <laughs> to let go, it's going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah don't get stagnated change uh-huh. is mm-hmm. on its way <laughs> don't get it stagnated is. exactly <laughs> Yeah, no, that definitely resonates because I think that we we do tend to be scared of change and we kind of enjoy the comfort even of bad situations, just that familiarity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like have it, it takes so much courage to change your situation, you know, in so many in so many ways. And so like having I like I kind of see her as embodying that courage, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this one might be a little bit easier to answer because we're not asking you to rank your your women <laughs> but we were interested to hear because so many of these stories were actually unfamiliar to us because we're also sort of starting from a place of being more familiar with greco-roman traditions but which woman in myth did you find had the most complex backstory in your view oh that's a good one um do you want to go first jen or do you want me to go first um, you go first because I'm thinking. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's my far away thinking phase. <laughs> I would Works say very that, well with radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done, Jen. Um, I would I would say for me, um, there's this character. It's actually two characters in one: um, Amba and Shikandi from the Mahabharata in India, the ancient Indian epic. Um, and I, this is one of the um, trans characters that I just completely fell in love with. Trans or you know non-binary, perhaps it's a little bit hard to to tell and depends on the source um but this character I think if I recall right I don't exactly remember the order but I saved them for either last or very close to last because I I felt that it was a very complex topic to handle and I wanted to really make sure that I did it right um and 
some of the complexity of it was talking about Shikandi's gender. Um, so this is a story about uh, reincarnation, basically. And it starts off with this woman, a cisgender woman named Amba, who um, is in love with this man and gets kidnapped by another man and basically has her life ruined by, by this guy who kidnaps her because her original boyfriend or, you know, lover wouldn't marry her um, after she has been kidnapped. And then the guy who did the kidnapping wouldn't marry her because I, I guess he had a vow of some kind. And, um, you know, just kind of, he just sort of casually destroyed this woman's life. So she really just wanted to get revenge. But this was uh, a renowned warrior and nobody would side with her and help her get revenge on him. Um, so she prayed about it in the forest. And uh, one of the gods came to her and said that uh, she would be able to successfully get revenge, but only in another lifetime. So she uh, immediately built herself a funeral pyre and jumped into it so that she could hasten her own reincarnation. And eventually, depending on the sources, she may have gone through a number of lives before eventually being reborn as this character, Shikandi, who um, their, their gender is either you could look at them as a transgender man or a transgender woman or perhaps a non-binary person or perhaps a cis woman who just really doesn't conform to expectations of cisgender women in that time. You know, like it's very complicated writing about it, but um, I really enjoyed learning about Shikandi and learning about, you know, gender as told and described in this epic and um, also like more modern depictions of Shikandi and how their gender has been depicted throughout the years. And um, eventually, like the cool thing about Shikandi is that they become eventually um, a, the charioteer of this other really renowned warrior in the Kurukshetra War, which is featured in the Mahabharata. And they wind up just finding this, this original person who had ruined Amba's life and riddling them with arrows and taking epic revenge. And it's just such a really great, harrowing and gripping tale. And that just happens to involve a genderqueer character from thousands of years ago. And I really enjoyed that. And I found it, you know, a complex and challenging topic to cover and I for me because I just wanted to make sure I was getting it right but also just really really fun to learn about yeah so mine is a little more recent uh La Llorona who is the uh, Mexican whaling uh, woman of mythology is super fascinating and her history is so deeply rooted in the colonization of the uh, of, of Mexico and you you know her story stretches back to um when uh, when Mexico was colonized by the, by the Spanish, um, she started out her life as a an indigenous woman who a, has a love affair with a Spanish guy. And at this particular point in time, this was very common. Um, and a lot of indigenous women had these, they were sort of like second spouses or relationships with these um, Spanish, uh, Spanish men. And so what happens is this guy who has been professing his love for her, they have two children together, all of a sudden is like, hey, so um, I have to marry this, you know, other woman. And um, in addition to that, I'm going to take our kids because I think that it would be better for me to raise them. And like, you can totally visit them and stuff, but I'm done with you. Um, and so the, you know, the choice that is left to this woman, uh, you know, is is not great. Uh, she, out of grief and despair, drowns her children and usually kills herself. She's usually found by a body of water. Um, and a lot of her history is, uh, you know, then she comes back and is sort of, a, a, a you know, a spectral spirit who, you know, is 
takes children or, you know, will we'll drown you in the water. But all of that is so deeply tied to colonization and how women were treated. Like it was very common that, um, con- you know, Spanish conquerors would, conquerors, you know, Spanish colonizers would, um, have affairs with indigenous women and then take their children from them because they didn't believe that they were able to raise their own children. Um, and the treatment of, of women was absolutely appalling and, and the indigenous people in, in general. And one of the other things about this mythology that Jenny helped me understand, because I didn't know this, um, is that some of that folklore, which now has like its own sort of um, operas and um, its own sort of like place in the Day of the Dead celebrations, but some of it goes all the way back to the Aztec conquest. I'm going to let you talk about that, Jenny, because you know it a lot more clearly than I do, even though I wrote the entry. Yeah. I always confuse it. Well, I mean, I think just that that part of it is that there were Aztec goddesses that may have, um, that that La Llorona may have also had her roots in, like um, goddesses that involved child sacrifice in some way or goddesses that were tied to water in some way. Some of this comes like was written about in, um, you know, codices that uh, record uh, um, people who had lived through the siege of um, Tenochtitlan, for example, like accounts of, you know, signs importance of, of this siege. And some of them involved, you know, wailing women, for example, showing up at the streets of Tenochtitlan the night before, um, and wailing about their children, you know, dying or being in harm's way. Um, some of this is less than trustworthy because it comes from through a Spanish lens. There were all these, you know, Spanish priests running around at a certain time, you know, in the decades after the conquest interviewing, um, indigenous survivors of the, of these events and, um, writing the, these things down but it was the priests writing them down so um how and and this also goes for some of the mythology around Itzpapalo too and we talk about that in her entry um how trustworthy that some of this stuff is is a little bit up for interpretation you know and like questionable but there there is some uh some documentation of that so it's possible that there that there were goddesses that um that La Llorona calls back to that have indigenous roots as well yeah, as a foretelling of this doom, right? Yeah, and like a doom foretelling. Just, and that has to do with, you know, yeah. either death of children and death in the water, you know. Yeah, and look, I think you see those Sudamela parallels coming through in like the tale of Medea, for instance. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, this story of conquest and people coming in and taking ownership of a place or assuming that somehow they they it's theirs now. And what are the fallout consequences of that? And there is a long, long history of that kind of colonial violence. And it's really good to see these stories coming through because it emphasizes just how common it is and also puts us, situates us in the fight to going forward. Like how do we do the processes that undo some of the problematic consequences of this kind of history as well? Like how do we do it well? And I feel like there's a long way to go, but yeah, I think absolutely. there's an inherent value in the in sharing these kinds of stories just to reiterate just how common this kind of violence is and also situating us in a in a position of action what to do next. And also like a you know one of the things you see is that it's very much this mythology in particular is a psychic scar that you have on a people who after you know after the the horrors of colonization they don't there's a lot of things we don't have anymore as a result but this story comes through and it is one of those things that remains with us and you know should be a way of telling us like you know this the there's just so much there that 
I'm not I'm not making any sense at the moment. Um, it's just it is like a psychic scar that does come through in the folklore that is is there to you know continually remind us of the horrors of colonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like how these women were treated and you know, how basically how the Spanish colonizers treated indigenous women that they had relationships with. Definitely. No, look, I think that that actually is a really good place to, to start to wrap up because one of the things I was <laughs> very impressed by when I looked inside and started reading my copy of your book is that you guys were very restrained in that even though I think when you probably started your podcast, you were focusing more on sort of Greco-Roman world topics and, and I've seen with your episodes that I've been listening to that you gradually move beyond the sort of Greco-Roman world. And certainly in this book, I was very impressed that you were very restrained in the in the use of Greco-Roman mythology. Because, I mean, you really could, you could easily populate, uh, you know, 50 women from Greco-Roman mythology if you wanted to in a book like this. But I was, I was really blown away by the array of cultures that were on display. Is that something that you were exploring in the podcast and that sort of gave you the idea for the book or did the book kind of inform where you've taken the podcast? Um, I think it, that Jen and I had both really wanted to move beyond Greco-Roman stuff for a long time. I mean, our podcast is called Ancient History Fangirl, not just Ancient Greco-Roman History Fangirl. And yet for our first, you know, couple years, we really stayed in that realm because... And I think that it wasn't something we did as a conscious decision. We just kept falling down these rabbit holes. And like the more we learned, the more we wanted, we found things we wanted to cover. And the more we got confident in this one area and we get excited about things. And, you know, it was just really hard to wrench ourselves away. And we had, we realized like we had to make this conscious decision to do that. And we had been talking about how we were going to do it for a while when the opportunity to write this book came about. So it felt like a natural extension of expanding our, our horizons in that way you know? Um, but we had planned to do that already on the podcast and we would have done it whether the, um, the book had happened or not, but I'm really glad we did it because I think it, it gave us both, you know, kind of more of a, like more of a global view on history as well as mythology, because we talk about history and how, how the history and the mythology kind of meld in a lot of the entries that we did anyway. So. Yeah. Everything that Jenny said, um, I think our podcast because I have a deep and abiding love of Greco-Roman mythology as sometimes just stays in Greece and Rome a little too long. Not that Jenny doesn't also, but like that's, that feels like my home to me. Um, but one of the great things about this book is it forced us outside of that. And we had always planned to do that. Um, and I think it really, uh, it really broadened our horizons and it sort of gave us a lot of confidence to be able to continue doing it. Um, I also know that we did a, a season, a couple of, couple of seasons ago about gender in the ancient world and when we finished that season I was like Jenny I am now broken <laughs> I need to leave Greece and Rome for a little bit of time what can we do to get out of Greece and Rome because like yeah <laughs> we were both feeling a little bit like we just needed a, a, a scene shift you know um so <laughs> just watching the patriarchy be built you're like yeah no I got it what could we do that's going to just bring joy back to my life <laughs> and then we decided to cover ancient mysteries which was basically like a lot of uh natural disasters and skeletons where they shouldn't be so <laughs> i don't know how yeah I'm... light that was <laughs> well i think one of the things we did in the ancient mysteries series that i'm incredibly proud of and I, I say it every time we talk about it is our first um episode in that series is about the dating of the, the sphinx how old is the sphinx and um we spent a lot of time in that series really digging into stuff that were actual mysteries and then also stuff that maybe 
some TV channel or streaming service would like you to believe are mysteries for ancient alien reasons, but aren't. Um, and I think it's really easy for people who are sort of who, who follow things on those places to think like, oh, I found this mystery because aliens built it or whatever, and not unpack the actual reality of the good work that archaeologists and historians and scientists and mythographers are doing to show you real mysteries and ask questions that aren't about sort of colonization. Yeah. Uh, well, they are about colonization, but aren't about, you know, whitewashing other people's history because, yeah. Yeah, oh, definitely. No. That, that is my biggest thing. I absolutely no. cannot stand it when my students come in and go, didn't aliens build the pyramids? I'm like, shut your mouth right now. That is racist propaganda, whether you realize exactly. it or not. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we, we started with that episode. Jenny did such an amazing job of it, of showing you how you can watch a documentary and you can listen to that very smart sounding documentary and start going down this rabbit hole of, wait a minute, aliens built this? Wait a minute. They're... Wait a minute, have I just fallen down a racist rabbit hole? What happened? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of like when we started doing Ancient Mysteries, like you can look at something like Gobekli Tepe or, you know, um, different, different like, you know, monuments around the world. And Teotihuacan is absolutely one of these. Cahokia is one of these where you look at that, like there there are obviously extremely legitimate and fascinating mysteries around around these uh, monuments but there's also you know kind of all this pseudo-historical stuff built up around it and we didn't realize the extent to which we'd have to pick through that in that season so the there's an ep the first episode we dropped was is the sphinx ten thousand years old and um it's kind of just talking about like Starting starting with like how easy it is to if you are a layperson like Jen and me and you you are not like a scholar yourself in this stuff and you're just like well I don't know this guy has a PhD in the front of his name and he's in all the same journals as the other guys and so why is why is this illegitimate you know how would you know and you know talking about how e how easy it is to to be sort of drawn in by that and then where you wind up is basically the people who actually built this thing didn't build these things. Maybe it was white people who are also from Atlantis. From Atlantis, racist Atlantis. And also Mars, like, originally from Mars. And for some reason, all the Martians yeah. are white. Go, go yep. figure, yep. you know? <laughs> it would explain a lot, though, let's face it, yeah. if the aliens were white. Hmm. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I think it's also this very seductive idea though that we have about humankind in that mm -hmm. we have this idea that our story is one of progress that people thousands of years ago couldn't have done something super advanced because it was thousands of years ago and we must be smarter and you know ha have come such a long way from then that they can't possibly have done these things because that doesn't make any sense you know At, like we have to have this yeah. chronology and it's like no, <laughs> they have the same capacity as us to reason, to think, to create. And because they're from a different time and a different culture, maybe they come up with different ideas and different solutions to problems. But yeah, humans are, are capable of pretty much the same thing if they're of the, you know, the same type of, you know, of humankind. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah like the fact that we had flushing toilets in Scarabray, which is a tiny little island uh, a, vi a village on the sort of falling into the sea on a scottish island called uh i don't know if it's on stromness or if it's, it's up in the orkneys it's in, um, I but think they it's have flushing toilets yeah 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great um, place to finish up because uh, <laughs> realistically, we can finish up by saying that by talking to. Oh, sorry, I should Amanda, say it's a. <laughs> I should say it's a neo. I should say it's a Neolithic settlement. So like super, super, super old. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. No, I think I think it shows us that you know all throughout our history, humans have been like, what to do with shit? What to yeah. do with it? Oh, you know? <laughs> we don't like it. Why Where am I going to put it, guys? Yeah. I, made, I made some more. <laughs> uh, and so on that very sophisticated note, we're going to wrap up this absolutely wonderful conversation with the fabulous co-host of Ancient History Fangirl. If you haven't listened to it, and I can't imagine that you haven't, Please go and check it out. I'm going to pass over to Jen and Jenny so they can tell you all about where to find them and also how to purchase this amazing book of theirs. Thank you so much. Our podcast is Ancient History Fangirl. You can find us um, at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter, at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. We're not really on and TikTok. We're on. A, oh, what's our TikTok name? Ancient History Fangirl. There we go. We're also on TikTok. Keep that brand consistent when they give me characters. Heck yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can find us on TikTok. Um, and uh, yeah, our book, Women of Myth, is available basically wherever books are sold. Um, if your indie bookstore doesn't happen to have it, ask them to order it. I suppose. Is that how it works? I think so. Yeah. And ask your library. Libraries are great. They're free. Um, ask your library to order it in. They should be able to. Interlibrary um, loan. We... Exactly. It's also available on audiobook. We read it. Yeah. Um, and as an ebook. You get to hear the dulcet we... tones of our voices. <laughs> <laughs> we encourage physical copies because Sarah's illustrations are just incredible. They are very vibrant. So I can't tell you how much we've enjoyed chatting to you today. And the thing that's really put it over the top for me is that there's actually been a podcast in the background of Jenny's screen. (laughs) I've just seen paws appearing at random times. Having a great little stretch. Little stretch. It's been a wonderful show (laughs) of, you know, napping and relaxation in the background. The podcast. That's exactly it. You know what's so funny about that, too, is that when we did our Spartacus episode, one of your cats, I don't know which one it was, was nuzzling up to the microphone and murmuring little cat sounds into it the whole time. And we kept it in there. I feel like that would have been Hamish. Yeah, yeah I, have, I, have, I have a cat that is deaf like me. And he does not respect boundaries, therefore. <laughs> Fair. And who would want him to? I mean, he's a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. We won't leave it so long in between episodes next time, I think. Absolutely. No,